Man, I haven't even started yet. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> no, that's, I'm totally kidding. Uh, thank you, Alan. That was beautiful. Uh, the song is Behold the Lamb, uh, if, you, if you weren't familiar with the tune. It's, it's a beautiful arrangement. There have been many great inventions in the history of the world. Fire, the wheel, metal alloys like steel, you know, the printing press, electricity, penicillin, radio, going to the moon, the internet, you know, just, it, just, just to name a few. There are many, many great inventions, but there's one that I think does not get enough credit, and it's the two times as fast button on YouTube. I don't think that one gets enough credit. <laughs> you know, I, do, do you know how to use this? You click on the little gear symbol and then it comes up and you can say, I want to watch this at 2x speed. Oh, I love that. I love that. It's fantastic because you'd be watching a video and the guy's like, here's how to make a, a, you know, a stand for your drill press in your garage or whatever. And you're like, oh my goodness, Joe, I don't care how many times you went to the hardware store to find the piece of plywood that you could afford. Show me how to make the dumb thing. Like, skip forward, right? And that's cool. That's really fun, you know. Or, or, or maybe there's been a time where you were like, uh, I, this, there's someone on there and they're showing you how to make a, a new kind of omelet. Like, okay, cool. And you can kind of skip to the important part. That's cool. But as great as the two times speed button is, there's one that it's, I think even better, and it's the 0.5 speed. Half as fast half speed, right? Because sometimes you're watching something and it's really complicated and it's, it, there's a lot of like, how did they do that? What's going on? Or, and I like to play guitar, right? So sometimes I'll watch a video. Uh, if you've seen me up here ever doing like a lead part, like the, playing the melody of a song, I guarantee you I went on YouTube and like, how did he do that? And I slow it way down and I learn because I'm a rhythm guy. Um, and it's just, it's awesome to be able to do that. You feel like you can kind of control time, like you're present in the past and in the future. Revelation kind of does that. It lets you be present in the past and in the now and in the not yet. That's part of how we approach the apocalypse, in the now and the not yet, being present in all of them. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, that's where we're going to begin today. Thanks for being here with us this morning. For those in the room, I'm grateful. For those of you watching online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. Um, I'm grateful that you could be with us as we continue our series in the book of Revelation called Approaching the Apocalypse. As I've mentioned before, I really do feel like we are nearing the fulfillment of God's plan for the ages. I'm also very cognizant of the fact that there have been other times in history that that seemed like it was true. And there is this kind of tension that we exist, and we're going to talk about that today. But it seems to me that many of the signs that Jesus predicted of the end seem to be present in our current experience. Um, also rec want to recognize that the book of Revelation is some of the most difficult material in the New Testament. So it's good to talk about how to approach the apocalypse. How do we approach this book? The, I've mentioned to you before that our word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, uh, which the root of our word apocalypse, but that it means uncovering, it means unveiling, that God is revealing to us what he's going to do in the end. And one truth that is inescapable when you study this is that there is very much a now and not yet element to revelation. Just as there is in Jesus' words about his kingdom in the gospels. And it's vital that we see these alongside each other. 
that there's a now and not yet element, okay? Because sometimes when Jesus talks about his kingdom, he means now. It, it's then for us, because it was 2,000 years ago, but it was now for him, it, his, his present, right? In Mark 1.15, Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Come near in what? In his ministry. Repent and believe the good news. And y'all, that message is still true today. In the ministry of Jesus, i.e. through the, the life and witness of the church, the, the presence of God has come near. And if you've never done that, you need to repent and believe the good news that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin. He said that that was present in his ministry. But then, we looked at this just a couple months ago, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus commands us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As if it was a thing yet to be. Right? And then in John 8, 18, 36, when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Well, which one is it, Jesus? Is it now or then? Is it here or there? Answer, yes. Yes. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of the now and the not yet. And this book of Revelation is a book of now and not yet. Some of the book speaks to events within the lifetime of John's original audience. In fact, we're going to look at this in Revelation 12, seems to predict the birth of the Messiah. This is written 90-ish AD, somewhere in there. John is very old at this point. John may not have even been born when Jesus was born. John might have been younger than Jesus. If that's true, one of the things that's talked about in this book happened before nearly all of John's original audience would have been born. The prophecy that's here, that's predicted, that we're going to see the, the birth of the Messiah, <laughs> happened before any of them were even there to witness it. So it, it's, it's current for them. And some of the things that, he, that this book talks about sure sounds like it's going to apply to those Christians who are on earth in what we would call the terminal generation, the final generation who gets to see the return of Jesus with human eyes. Well, how do you know what's, what's what? How do we approach this? I think the answer that I would give you today is we need to be present now and then. <laughs> present in the now and present in the then, the not yet. What we do know is that all of this book is for all Christians to help them know how to live until Jesus returns. Now, when is that going to be? Well, nobody, nobody, not even Jesus, knows when that is. According to the Lord's own word in Matthew 24, 36, even Jesus himself does not know. He says, only the Father knows when that's going to be. And here's the mental picture I have of Jesus in heaven right now. I feel like he's just kind of perched on the edge of the throne, just listening and waiting. Waiting for his Father to say, all right, son, go get her. Jumps. Eager to come claim his bride. 
I don't know if it's like that or not, but you can't prove I'm wrong, so we'll just run with it. (laughs) You see, I hinted at something in the first week in this series. I want to take the time to detail it now because I I think we need to keep this in mind as we study our text today. For centuries, there have been predictions and theories about when the events prophesied in Revelation will occur. I, I hinted at this. I want to take a little time, if you'll permit me, to detail them now. In 500 AD, Hippolytus of Rome, Julius Africanus, and Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, predicted that uh, Jesus would return in the year 500. They were wrong. January 1st, 1000 AD, Pope Sylvester II announced that the millennium, the thousand years in Revelation 20, was about to begin. Various other churchmen around that time predicted the same. They were wrong. Following the failure of the January 1, 1,000 prediction, they they all had a collective moment. And like, oh, duh, not from his birth, from his resurrection. So they changed it to 1033 AD. They were wrong about that too. And of course, Pope Sylvester died before then, conveniently for him. In 1504, Sandro Botticelli stated that he believed that he was living during the time of the tribulation. And that the millennium, would be, the millennium would begin in three and a half years from 15, 1500. He was wrong. On October 19th, 1533, the mathematician Michael Stiefel said that the day of the Lord would begin at 8 a.m. that day. He was wrong. After studying both the Bible and mystical messages of the Great Pyramid in 1780, or excuse me, 1874, Charles Taylor Russell, the founder of the sect that ultimately became the Jehovah Witnesses, concluded that the Second Coming had already taken place. And he declared that people had 40 years, or until 1914, to enter his faith or be destroyed. Not long after that, he modified it to very soon after 1914. It's 2022, Chuck. Still here, he was wrong. Do you see the trend? <laughs> Listen to me, church. Every single person who has tried to accurately predict with a date the events described in Revelation 12 or in chapter 20 has been wrong. There is a 100% failure rate on these. So hold very loosely anybody's statement about exact timing. Now listen, I think it's getting close. I think we see things in our culture. I think we see that you watch the news and you go, boy, that sure sounds like what Jesus is talking about. I also recognize that there have been times in, in the history of the church that that's also, those, those same signs have also been true. So we just, we kind of need to hold on to this loosely. I do believe that, that what we're seeing in the world seems like we're getting closer to this, but I kind of hold on to this loosely. So here's the question. Why do people even try to do this? I mean, after the first few are wrong, why even bother? Well, I thought about this a lot, and the answer I've come to is I think it's because they see things in their time that sure sound similar to the signposts that Jesus told his disciples to look for. They see that in their culture, and they're like, boy, that sounds like what Jesus was saying. We must be close. In one of the most powerful predictions about his return, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 24, starting in verse 9, look at this with me. He says, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. Are they doing that now? Yep. 
and we'll betray and hate each other. We see Christians doing that now? Sadly, yes, far too much. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Is that happening now? <laughs> yeah. Because of the increase of wickedness. Is there an increase of wickedness in our culture? Yeah, the, answer to, the right answer to that is yes. If you don't agree, you're just not watching the news. The love, of God, the love of most will grow cold. Have we seen the love of people grow cold lately? But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. A consistent promise all through the New Testament. Over and over and over again we see this. We read that and we think, all that stuff is happening right now. And it is. And 21 verses later, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 34, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have, have happened. What? Huh? Like, what does that mean? Well, it means a few things. Um, I guess one conclusion you could draw is that Jesus is crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We can't go there, right? Um, That's unacceptable. That the second person of the triune Godhead in bodily form is not in his right mind. We can't go there. I guess it could mean that the stuff he's describing is symbolic or that this generation is a symbol <laughs> but if he's describing the end if, the, if Matthew 24 is about the end then the this generation if that's literal doesn't make sense so maybe the stuff he's describing is symbolic and the this generation or maybe just maybe <laughs> the kingdom of God is bigger than time itself and that's what I want to bring up to you today That's what I want to hold before. How do we approach the apocalypse? We need to be present now and then because God's kingdom transcends time. We can be present with him in time and beyond it. I think that the book of Revelation shows us how we can be present with God in the now and in the not yet. So we approach the apocalypse by being present now and then. Let's talk about being with God in the now. Last week we talked about the symbolism and structure in Revelation Uh, The passage in Revelation 12 that we're going to look at today is is probably more densely packed with symbol and structure than nearly, uh, symbol and and Old Testament reference than probably any other passages, maybe with one or two exceptions, in in the whole of Scripture. So what I want to do is is read down through Revelation 12 and just kind of talk about these symbols as we go, okay? Look with me at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So who is this woman? Well, some have said it's Mary, because we'll see in a little bit where this is very messianic, right? Yeah, yeah, part of that fits. That fits. But there are other pieces that don't fit. And other people said, well, it's 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 the Jewish nation. Well, yeah, some of that fits too. Um, You know, you've got this glow of the stars and the sun and moon under her feet, crown of 12 stars, the 12. Anytime you get 12 in Revelation, it's, there's generally kind of some reference to Israel. But that doesn't totally fit either. The, the, the best conclusion I've been able to draw is it's God's people as they should be, which encompasses Israel, right? It encompasses Mar- Mary was an exemplar. There's a, there's a reason God picked her. <laughs> she was exemplary as part of God's people. So I, I think that this, this woman is just kind of an idealized picture of God's people as they should be. The church is often called the bride of Christ, imaged as a woman, right? So, so we've got this. Let's keep going. Verse 2. 
she was pregnant and cried out in pain. And that's where everybody goes, ah, Mary. Okay, right? Yeah, um, but let's keep going. She, she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. And people realize that. Now, some of you are into numbers, right? You, you dig the whole number side of things. And I don't know what it is. I, this was an observation we had early on. Chapel Rock has a disproportionate share of math teachers. I don't know. Uh, it's a bunch of people in, into math in our church. But so people see, they hear the number seven, right? We go, oh, number seven, that's the number of perfection and completion. But it's applied to a bad guy. <gasps> What's going on? Well, yeah, but it's, you got seven heads with ten horns. How do you pull that off? Some have more than others? I, what? That's weird. Seven crowns on its heads. Does each head have seven crowns, or does each crown have one? Each of the seven heads have one? It's a composite image. He's pretending. He's trying to give himself more glory than he's due. All right, let's keep going. Its tail, the dragon's tail, swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, this flung them to the earth is going to be really important, okay? This is not about a moral fall. The image here is, is athletic. It's military. This is this idea of it's combat. He, he, when, when he hurled down, when anything in Revelation is thrown to the ground, it's not the thrown down of humiliation. It's the thrown down of conquest, it's, you think Greco-Roman wrestling, right? You're wrestling, and wham, the guy hits the, hits the mat. Or in that case, the dirt. He's, he's cast down. It's the, this idea that he's, he's attacking. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, all right, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. And this is where people go, okay, the woman's Mary, right? Because that sure sounds like Herod in Matthew chapter 2. Like, oh, okay, yeah, that's who that is. All right, let's keep going. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Clear Old Testament reference, clear understanding the male child is the Messiah, right? That, that, there's, nobody really debates that. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Well, what's that? Probably it's a reference to his ascension, right? That's to, back to God's throne. Jesus says he's going to do that. Like, well, some will be like, well, but, but remember, he was rescued from Herod because the dragon was going to try to devour him, and maybe, maybe that's a reference to Egypt. I... Maybe this is just flipping the timeline around. You'll see that in a second, okay? Keep going. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. This wilderness is, is a huge concept, right? What is the wilderness for Israel? It's a place of testing, but it's also a place of safety. Israel was tested in the wilderness mightily. But where did they go after their enslavement for 400 years in Egypt? The wilderness. Where did God take them to craft them into a people of his own? The wilderness. Now, he brought them out of it, and that's what our next sermon series is going to be about, and I'm super excited to tell you about that next week. B but <laughs> the place, the wilderness for Israel, it, yes, it is a place of testing. It is a place of trial, but it is also a place of safety. It is a place of protection. It's where God takes his people to keep them safe. All right? so, so the woman flees into the wilderness. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Now we go, when did that happen? Uh, we'll see. The great dragon was hurled down. Again, thrown to the ground. Military conquest image. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Let me pause right there. 
Who is the dragon? Thank you. This symbol is explained by John. Right? He, he flat out tells you what it is. The dragon is, a, is symbolic of Satan. In the vision that he's getting from God, this is that. That doesn't always happen in Revelation. So we pay, better pay really close attention. He says the dragon is Satan. He's symbolic, all right? He was hurled to the earth with his, and his angels with him. When does this happen? Well, Jesus seems to think it was in his ministry. So I'm going to go with Jesus on that one. Let's keep going. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So we've got this image here, this hurled down, hurled to the earth is this athletic military image, right? Satan is defeated in in this timeline. Keep going. It says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and all who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea. The sea is very often in Revelation an image for fallen sinful humanity. When it says in, in the depiction of heaven, we'll talk more about heaven next week and our experience in the resurrection, it says there's no longer any sea. What? Like, why would there not be any large bodies in a new heavens and a new earth, right? A recreated planet. Why would there not be a sea? It's because the sea is symbolic in Revelation for fallen sinful humanity. So he's thrown down to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you, right? He's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Again, whenever you talk about time, like, when, when is this? Short time. What? <laughs> okay. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman that had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. One interesting thing here is that when God refers to taking Israel out of slavery into the desert, he says, I brought you out on eagle's wings. He says this in Exodus 19, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 32, 11. So we're kind of coming back to this image of God's people being protected from the enemy, protected from the dragon, all right? Then out of his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. You need to know that in Revelation, the stuff that's coming out of people's mouths is usually a symbol for their words. So the dragon is spewing lies to go after the woman, i.e. God's people as they should be. Right? Think about Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth, which he uses to judge the nations. Does he have a literal sword coming out of his mouth? Well, yes, in the vision John saw, there is a sword coming out of his mouth. But the sword is a symbol for his words, that the words of Christ ultimately judge the nations with regard to righteousness. Okay? So, it says, the earth helped the woman. You see creation on God's side here. Helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who are they? Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. That's, 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 so it's, it's us, y'all. <laughs> it's us. The dragon making war against the woman's offspring is... <laughs> Satan hates you, you know? He, he wants you to burn forever with him. So here's an important question. 
When does all that happen? Is it a long time ago? Or is it still in our future? Yeah. Yeah. All over this planet every day, this, our enemy is on attack against those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. If you don't believe that, you should probably sign up for the Voice of the Martyrs email to pray for the persecuted church around the world. Because it's happening every day all over this planet. See, we see a lot in Revelation 12 that sounds like it happened a long time ago. But then like in the next verse, it sounds like something out of the voice of the martyr's email newsletter. What is going on? How can this be? Well, you have to remember the opening words of the book of Revelation. Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who read the words of this prophecy and, and this is where the NIV blows it in chapter 1, verse 3, they translate it, take it to heart, but it's the normal word for obedience. Who keep, literally it means keep, who keep the words of this. We're supposed to obey. There's, there's a moral imperative here. What should you do? You should hold to the testimony of Jesus. <laughs> there's an implied moral imperative in these moments. This book reminds us that we are only the most recent soldiers in a war that has been raging for millennia. Jesus is in the continual process of making us ready to fight in the now so that we will be ready if we are this generation who witnesses the end of days. In his commentary on Revelation, Oscar Coleman compares the, this distinction to the difference between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. Right? On D-Day, the Allies invaded at the beach at Normandy, and, of course, we now know on this side of history, that was the beginning of the end for the Third Reich, right? Once the Allies got a foothold on the beach at Normandy, there was a lot of hard fighting for, for months and months after that, but that was the beginning of the end for the Nazis. But it didn't, we, didn't, we can't say that we won <laughs> officially until V-Day, when, when, when there was, you know, a total defeat of the Nazi forces, The ministry of Jesus, his death on the cross in your place for your sin, his glorious resurrection, his ascension to the Father, that was D-Day. It was the beginning of this great battle for the end time. When he comes again, rider on a white horse, that's V-Day. That's game over. And we live between the times, in the now and the not yet. Always in this tension. Right? We, we know there are still battles to be fought. And so your place, Christian, is with God in the now. The book of Revelation has been given you to encourage you to not give up the fight. Now, I, I see this church and I see this happening and you hear about Christians deconstructing and it breaks my heart because I just want to, would you just read the end of the book? Do not give up. If you are feeling overwhelmed in the fight, do not skip the end of the book. If you're here today and you're like, Casey, I am barely keeping my head above water right now, go home and reread this book. As it reminds you to hang in there. Keep to the testimony of Jesus. Keep the word of Christ. The war has been won. It's just not over yet. 
Our enemy is defeated, but he is still powerful. He is still deadly. I've told people before, the image I like to use is that Satan's like a big, nasty junkyard dog. He's on a chain. He can't get you. Jesus has limited him, his power. He's bound. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But don't go close to the dog. Stay away from the big, mean, nasty dog. So we take heart knowing that our God has triumphed and he will return in victory and we pray one day soon. But we also understand that for a little while we, we may have to suffer here. And the good news is that God is not only present with us in the now, church, he is using you to bring his kingdom here, to bring his kingdom near. Part of our mission is to bring in the kingdom of God, to allow people to experience its blessings in the here and now. But he is not only present with us in the now, he's also present with us in the not yet. And he calls you to be with him in the not yet also. Sometimes I wonder if the if part of God's purpose in giving John this revelation was to teach the church how to wait, to kind of live in that tension. On the TV show, How I Met Your Mother, there's a character named Barney Stinson, played by actor Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> and he's got this thing that he does. He, he'll, he's got this phrase, he said, wait for it, wait for it. He uses that, I think, to build, build dramatic tension in a moment. He, he'll say, this is going to be legend, wait for it, dairy. And, and, you know, he does this to build tension. I think generally it just annoys his friends. I'm not trying to annoy you. Let's be honest, I can do that without trying. Um, I'm not trying to annoy you, but I do believe that God's, God's purpose in teaching his church to wait is not just to heighten the drama. God is not just trying to turn up the drama on the end of time here. Turn to Revelation 20. Turn a few pages over to Revelation chapter 20. If there's any chapter in the book of Revelation that requires a knowledge of the Old Testament more than chapter 12, it's probably chapter 20. Um, which is why I wanted to make available to you a reference I have found invaluable. A couple weeks ago, I referenced Dr. Lowry, Dr. Bob Lowry's book, uh, Revelations Rhapsody. We have one copy of this in our church library, uh, which is uh, in the room just on that, out that way in the hallway. Uh, but there's another one coming in. You can get your own copy at chapel, or excuse me, uh, collegepress.com. It's actually on sale right now. Um, it's like 18 bucks or something. And so what I've done is actually um, photocopy for you and kind of just make it fit better on a page. Um, the quotations and allusions in Revelation. This is Appendix A from, from this book, all right? Um, I, 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 you know, I, I think that that'll be beneficial to you. This is a work of unparalleled scholarship. We have copies of this available at the Information Center. For those watching online, uh, I believe there's a link in the description on our YouTube page where you can go to download this. Th this, this is an incredible work of scholarship where Dr. Lowry has gone through and listed verse by verse in Revelation every single Old Testament quotation or allusion in the whole book. And, and you just page through here and you look at, like, uh, let's see, Revelation, just, I'm literally picking one at random. Revelation 5, 6. There are uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 references in that one verse. Uh, spread throughout the Old Testament. This is, is incredible scholarship, and when you get to chapter 20, you're like, oh my word, there's so much. So what I want to do is just take a second and just read this. Look with me at Revelation chapter 20, starting verse 1. 
And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan. Any confusion about who we're talking about? <laughs> okay, good. Just make that clear. And bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the, to the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, we'll come back to that, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This chapter, this passage is at the core of all the debates about the timing of Jesus' return. There are three main views that kind of map out these thousand years. You will hear the term millennium or millennial. Now, please understand, when I use the word millennial, I'm not talking about people in their 20s and 30s. Okay, <laughs> they're all sitting over there. Um, <laughs> so the gen I'm Gen X, my kids are Gen Z. I'm not talking about the generation between. We have several staff members who are millennials. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about the thousand years that's referenced multiple times down through this chapter, okay? And, and I want to show you some, some charts that map this out. Uh, I copied these out of Dr. Jack Cottrell's book, The Faith Once for All. This is an incredible reference for you. Um, Dr. Cottrell recently passed away, went to be with the Lord, has, and has, I'm sure, received a mighty reward in heaven. Um, this is basically a systematic theology for the Restoration Movement, for the Christian church. Uh, it's outstanding, and the last quarter of it is all, like, end times stuff. Like the last quarter of the book is focused on that. It's an outstanding resource. It's also collegepress.com. Um, really, really great. These, are, these charts are his. He, he created these, okay? So I want to give, give credit where credit is due. But I just kind of want to walk through these. So the first one we have is uh, traditional premillennialism, all right? So this idea that the premillennial, so the thousand years is the millennium, pre is before. So Jesus comes back before the thousand years, all right? So you have the first coming of Christ, his first advent, then you have the church age, right? Then you have the second coming of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of the righteous and the binding of Satan. And then you have the millennium, this thousand years described in Revelation 20. Somewhere in here, Satan is loosed, right? 
And then you have the bodily resurrection of the wicked, final judgment, great white throne, all that stuff. That's traditional premillennialism. There's another form of it called dispensational premillennialism. Uh, I, I didn't want to show you that chart because I'd need about five TVs up here. It, it's su substantially more complicated than this. this is, and this is probably, to be fair, an oversimplification, right? Just to, to be clear about that. So that's this view. Very common. This is the dominant view among, broadly speaking, in, in Protestant evangelical circles. This is the norm, right? Okay. So here's the next one. This is post-millennialism. So post, after, millennial, the, the thousand years. Right? So again, we have the first coming of Christ. And then at some point, Satan is bound. This is the church age during this time frame. And the millennium begins. Now, you'll find two schools of thought. Some post-millennials believe in a literal thousand years. Other post-millennials believe in a figurative thousand years. But that's the idea, is that Jesus comes first, and at some point in the time of the church, Satan is bound, and then a thousand years later, literally or not, he's loosed. And again, second coming, bodily resurrection, judgment, great white throne, all that stuff. Now, you need to understand, this was the dominant view pretty much coming out of the Enlightenment and all through uh, the, like, really, really coming out of the Renaissance into the Enlightenment and um, through the Industrial Revolution, the Victorian Age, there were a lot of post-millennials, lots of them. People had this view, this idea in the millennium that things are just going to get better and better and better, and it's like Jesus is, is reigning on earth, and it's, he's here. He's, we just can't see him, but he's here. And, and this was the dominant view until 1914. What happened in 1914? World War I. Automatic weapons. Mustard gas. 20 years later, World War II. 30 years later, Cultural Revolution of the 60s. Another 30 years later, and you get the LGBTQ stuff happening in the 90s, beginning to happen. Another, another 30 years out of that, and, and we've got basically the, the victory of relativism in our culture. Yeah, things are not getting better. So, so there were a lot of post-millennials all the way up until about 100 years ago, and they've, they've kind of died out. Now, I quoted Dr. John Frame in this series. He identifies this way. I was surprised, honestly. I didn't know they still made them. <laughs> um, so there's this view, and there's, there's one more dominant or, or main view, and it's amillennial. Now, ah is the Greek prefix for not. And, and, and to be clear, most amillennials acknowledge the authority of Revelation 20. It's just that they view the thousand years as figurative. It's, it's symbolic, like a lot of the rest of the content of Revelation. Um, I will freely tell you, I fall into this camp, but with an asterisk. All right, I'm, I'm very willing to say, this is, this is what my study has led me to. I think it best fits most of the passages that we see in the New Testament. Um, but I fully recognize, I might be wrong about that. And if you had to make me pick a second choice, I'd probably be premillennial, historic premillennialism, not dispensationalism. If I had to pick a second choice, and, and maybe that's what will happen, but again, the millennium is seen as the age of the church, that the thousand years of Revelation 20, it's a symbolic number, and it's the time in which Satan is bound, right? So Jesus comes, and he binds Satan. I'm going to point you to something in a little bit where we see that. And then at some point, he is loosed. And then there's this time of great trouble, and then the second coming of Jesus and his return. Now again, I, I'm, I'm, this is probably the best description of where I'm at on this, but it's with an asterisk. 
I've said before, I'll say it again. You can hold different convictions than me and we can still love and serve Jesus together. Romans 14 is really clear. This is one of those disputable matters. It's important, but it's not ultimate, okay? So what does this mean? Well, I think it means for us and how we understand God in the not yet is that he is, Satan is bound now. If, if this viewpoint, third viewpoint is correct, he is now bound. And the idea that Satan is now bound is a little hard to swallow when you watch the news regularly. Like, what? Here's the thing. In Luke 10, 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Remember we talked about both in Revelation 12 and in Revelation 20, he is thrown down. He falls. He loses, at least in part. Also, Jesus unequivocally claimed to do the binding that is referenced, I believe, in Revelation 20. Jesus claimed to do that in Matthew 12, 22 through 30, the parable of the strong man. Remember? He says if, you know, if, if a guy wants to break into a house, you know, only a strong man can bind him. So who is the stronger man? Jesus. <laughs> he said, I, he has bound Satan. There's a time, in this time of the age of the church, Satan is limited in what he can do. And the binding of, of Satan to the early church probably just meant nothing could stop the Great Commission from being effective. The gospel goes out into all corners of the world. And I will say that the great appeal of the premillennial position especially if you believe it's going to happen soon, <laughs> is that the human race gets to experience a thousand years without Satan bugging us. Like, Yay! <laughs> That's, that sounds great. Sign me up. I want that, right? I, I resonate with that. But even so, I, I think that that, that represents our, our current experience. So we come to Revelation 20, verse 7. Let me show you this again. When the thousand years are over, over, What if that's now? What if this is what we're experiencing? What if, the, what if Satan's binding is now being loosed? And the increase of wickedness that we see, the loss of love that we see, is that binding either loosening or breaking by God's sovereignty? Because even if you're an amillennial, you've got to acknowledge that when this time is over, things get bad. And I wonder if that's not where we are. I don't know. I'm not, I, I've learned from history. I'm not going to make the mistake of trying to set a time. Even people who disagree with me, even people who have, have a different view of the end times than me would, would agree it's a bad idea to set times. So what does this mean for us? See, God calls us to be with him in the now and the not yet. What's that mean? That's the second part of being present with God. Satan gets loose for a bit. God still wins. God still wins. It, 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 it's not long, and he loses fast, and he loses hard. In just four verses, we, he goes from being on the loose, wreaking havoc around the world, to being thrown into the lake of fire, and we get the great white throne of the judgment in the end of time. So if you assume that the age of the church is the thousand years, that means that Satan is bound now. Again, there's other ways to view this, but if that's the assumption, it means that Satan is bound now. Jesus bound him, and therefore his power is limited. It may not seem that way, but we need to remember, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This means, then, that the coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years is symbolic, and it describes your experience now, that you are alive in Christ. You are resurrected. When we baptize somebody, what do we say? Buried with Christ and resurrected in him. 
It's the first resurrection. You're alive. You're reigning with Christ right now. That life, if you have accepted Jesus, it lives inside you. This is the victory that you are to walk in every day. Remember, we talked about being an overcomer, being resilient. But at the end of the church age, a time is coming when the binding that has held Satan in check since Jesus was resurrected will be released. And so we may be entering a time of terrible deception and and struggle. And so I would encourage you today to stand firm. Steal yourself against the days to come. What Jesus is trying to tell his church is that whether Satan is bound or not, your place is with God. That is how you stand firm in these end of days. When the French impressionist painter Auguste Renoir was confined to his home in the last years of his life, he became friends with another painter, Henri Matisse. Maybe you've heard of those names, remember them from art class in high school. Matisse was 28 years younger than his friend Renoir, but he would go visit him every day. And Renoir would paint, and he would, because of his arthritic hands, would have to hold the brush between his thumb and his index finger, and he would paint. And every now and then, his students who were studying him would hear him cry out in pain as he was painting, ah, ah, as the arthritis bit. And finally, one day, Matisse had had enough. (laughs) He said, Auguste, why do you still paint when you're in such pain? He said, my friend, The pain passes, but the beauty remains. What if that's where we are now, church? The pain passes, and the beauty remains. If indeed we are in that terminal generation, when the binding of Satan is going to come loose, it may mean that dark days are ahead. And so Jesus tells you, your place is with God, no matter what happens. And so you decide in your heart and mind right now, I will be with God no matter what. And if he gives us another thousand years, so be it. And if he gives us a thousand seconds and he comes back before the football game ends this afternoon, praise the Lord. You're to be present with God in the now and in the not yet. And we'll talk more next week about what that experience looks like. We'll talk about heaven next week. So come back, bring a friend. My question for you today is, are you present with God in the now? Because if you haven't decided to do that, you will not be present with him in the not yet. And so in just a second, we're going to stand and sing a song together. And if you've never made a decision to follow him, you need to understand that Jesus died so that you could be present with him in the not yet. You're going to have a chance to do that. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together. And if you're ready to acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord, you come while we sing. If you have another need for for prayer, that's fine too. But let's stand and we're going to sing together. And you respond as God leads you.